All right, let's turn to God's Word now uh, and look at a section of 2 Peter as we continue our study there. Um, I hope that uh, musical worship was meaningful to you. It helped you exalt Christ and make much of Him. Um, a few things just quickly before we jump in. Um, we are going to go a little shorter this week uh, with the sermon. Uh, and my sermon is going to continue on uh, in the voices of people from our congregation, uh, just testifying to uh, the truth of what Second Peter is going to talk about uh, this morning. So let them continue uh, to preach and to, to talk to you uh, when, when our time is done. Um, also, like last week, feel free to stop and discuss things as we go, um, if that's helpful to you. Uh, I will post discussion questions in the sermon outline and the resources uh, below this video if you want to stop and print those off. Uh, but let's uh, open God's Word together. Um, I thought I'd start just by praying uh, a section of Isaiah 66. So let's pray as we go into our time in God's Word. Heavenly Father, your Word says, and you say, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. O oh God, that is our desire, to come to you humbly this morning, to acknowledge that we are dependent and you are independent. We are creatures and you are creator. And so God, I pray that, that the... Uh, the tone of our listening would be that of humility, and that you would shape your people by this time in your word. Uh, thank you for your word, and for just how precious it is and how powerful it is. Uh, drive it into our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to continue on in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, and this morning we're going to look at the issue of certainty. Uh, life is so uncertain right now, isn't it? I mean, places that you thought could never change, would never change, are all of a sudden flipped on their head, and uh, life is very, very uncertain. Someone uh, brought up a passage actually in 2 Peter chapter 3, and the scoffers are saying in verse 4, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, we, that is not the case right now. People are, have been jolted out of what they're used to. And so the question for us this morning is, where do we look when everywhere we look, things are uncertain? Okay, and maybe that's a, even a discussion you could start off with, is right now, um, how has this pandemic changed what you thought was certain? How has it rattled you personally and specifically in, in various areas? So feel free to stop and discuss that. Uh, to jump as we jump in. Um, as we start our text this morning, a really important word in studying the Bible that you need to pay attention to are transition words. So in verse 12, it starts off with the word therefore. So in light of everything that he said before in 3 through 11, um, and I'll just read verses 12 through 15. It says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, 
since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter starts off in our text in 12 through 15 uh, wanting stability for these disciples that he's talking to. Um, And this is why he wants them to be diligent to make their calling and election sure. Like he said last week, as he looked at the different qualities uh, that supplement or that uh, travel with faith, uh, they're confirming qualities that faith has taken root. And so he wants to make sure that as they open up God's salvation gift, that they understand that godliness is in the box. It's a part of the contents. It's a part of what God provides in his rescue. He wants them to experience, right, the transformation by Christ's divine power that he talked about. That they can become partakers of the divine nature. He wants them to taste that and know that. He wants their knowledge to be fruitful, not wasteful. He wants them to learn to trust God and to trust in these precious promises that he's talked about. And finally, he wants them to to get entrance into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. That's how he ended last week. And so he wants this stability for these disciples. And he wants it so badly that, that he would spend what could be his final opportunity to communicate with them in this letter to make sure that they understand this so that they'll be anchored in Christ for the days when he's not around. Now, we've just looked at our context really briefly, but we're going to look at three things with our text. Um, this lasting reminder in verses 12 through 15. We're going to see Peter's personal experience in verses 16 through 18. And then Scripture's certain source in verses 19 through 21. So we're in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 through 21 this morning. So let's look at this lasting reminder that he gives us in verses 12 through 15. Really, if you wanted to sum it up, uh, it would be in this sentence. Peter's coming death causes him to continually remind these disciples how important godliness is in following Christ. So, when he says, therefore, he's saying, in light of how important all these qualities are, I'm going to remind you. Now, he says, I know that you know. So, it says, uh, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So, he's not telling them something new. But he's reminding them, and this really is, speaks to the importance of reminders, right? That's why we have timers on our phones and why uh, we have timers on our ovens so we know and remember that there's something in there. We need reminders because we forget all the time. And I understand it gets worse uh, as you get older. Um, and this is why we have to read our Bibles more than once, right? We're prone to forget We're prone to wander. And now in this paragraph, it says that Peter's death is imminent. It's mid-60s AD. Uh, He's uh, likely awaiting trial under arrest. He says, um, as long as I am in this body, or the putting off of my body, which is the word tent. So as soon as this earthly tent is folded and I uh, die, essentially. He also, in this paragraph, says, Uh, In verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And what he's likely talking about is what we find in John 21, 
where Jesus says that other people would dress him and carry him off in a way he didn't want to go, which is referencing him likely being killed. And so that just means that these words are especially important, right? These are some of Peter's final words to these believers. And so there's an urgency behind what he's saying. He says he will make every effort in verse 15. Remember those words? That's what he says earlier. All right, verse 5. He's doing the same thing, but in a pastoral kind of way for these people. Now the question is, how could Peter ensure that these disciples would be grounded in godliness after his death? What could he point them to that would help them to recall these things, as he says? Now there's two things, and these are going to be the two points of our uh, the rest of our time together. One, he's going to point to his personal experience. In verses 16 through, and then he's going to point to Scripture's certain source in verses 19 through 21. So let's talk about Peter's personal experience in 16 through 18. I'll read that for us. Peter goes on and says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is speaking to an experience that he had with a few other apostles on the mount of what's called transfiguration. And he's doing this in order to demonstrate that the message of the apostles is trustworthy. He's not just sharing a story. He's sharing what happened in order to say, you can trust our message. The key phrase in this is in verse 16, when it says, When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the thing that he wants shored up in their minds. What he's already taught them in in this apostles' teaching, you could say. We have to remember that that the believers here were being lured by others who had rejected the apostles' message, this group of false teachers. And they were doing that by saying that that Jesus either had um, returned already or that he wouldn't return. So the very things that the apostles had made known to them, quote-unquote, these false teachers were rejecting. We see that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Here's what that says. Peter says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Again, what we've talked about. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. This apostle's teaching. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, quote, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So that's the, the false teaching that he's combating. And so he's saying, no, no, no. The Lord Jesus is going to return. He is powerful. We witnessed both of those things on this Mount of Transfiguration. Now, these false teachers uh, were not only lying about the, re- the return of Jesus, but in 2 Peter 2.1, it even talks about 
They're questioning his authority. It says, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So they're not only denying the return, they're denying the authority of Jesus. And so Peter is saying, we did not follow, in verse 16, cleverly devised myths. And the word follow has this idea of, we, we didn't, is shaping us, uh, this made up thing. This, we didn't all get in a room and figure out how to make up this religion. Okay? But the false teachers are actually following um, the way of Balaam in chapter 2, verse 15. In chapter 2, verse 2, Peter says, And many will follow or be shaped by their sensuality. So Peter is saying, we didn't follow these, these myths or these lies. We didn't base our life on that. Um, we based our life on something that's actual and real and true. You could think about it this way. You could think about it like a star witness in a criminal trial. Right? They have first-hand knowledge of something that they're passing along to a group of other people who are going to decide if they're going to trust it or not. Right? So that testimony is, is going to be critical in order to understand the actuality of what happened, to understand what went down with this crime. And that's the intended effect of it. And if you don't believe the testimony of the star witness, then that colors and shapes the way that you view what actually happened. And so Peter is saying we are giving our testimony, our corporate testimony as apostles, as to what the Lord Jesus taught us to teach you. Um, and we need to return to that. includes the power of the Lord Jesus and the return of the Lord Jesus. So he's saying when you're deciding whose message to believe, us or them, about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus, here's why you should be shaped by our message. Here's why you should follow us. Now, he points to the scene, the Mount of Transfiguration, which you can find in three of the Gospels um, about this, this scene. Now, he starts off by saying, we saw these things firsthand. You'll notice we were eyewitnesses of his majesty in verse 16. So if you want to look, look up this passage that he's talking about, it's, one of them is in Mark chapter 9. You can stop the video and look it up if you want. Uh, pay attention to the details in there, and also look at what comes before it, um, before the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. But essentially, the nutshell of the story is um, Peter, James, and John go up on a mountain. Uh, when they got up there, uh, Jesus demonstrates his glory and power by transforming into this shining, radiant person. And this is likely what Peter means by that. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty or his radiance or his magnificence or his glory. The, it's funny, in the actual scene, the apostles are just kind of stumbling for words. They don't know what to do or what to say. And, and it's just this awkward scene because it's so overwhelming. The, the glory and the authority of Jesus is so obvious. That's why it's called the Mount of Transfiguration because Jesus literally transfigures into this breathtaking, awesome being right in front of them. And so Peter is saying, we were there. We saw this. The message that we're preaching to you is something we witnessed. 
But it doesn't just stop with what they saw, it continues on with what they heard. Because God the Father brings a cloud over them and speaks audibly to these apostles, and they heard it, so now they're not only eyewitnesses, but they're ear witnesses as well. Peter says that the Father brings honor and glory to his Son, to the Lord Jesus. And he identifies the voice of this uh, God as the majestic glory, which is a phrase borrowed from the Old Testament in Exodus 33 and 34. And this voice endorses the authority of this Son and and blesses him and, and professes love for him and that the apostles should obey him. Uh, many think that it, that language of the Father is borrowed from Psalm 2, verse 7, and Isaiah 42, 1, uh, supporting this idea that this is my authoritative Son. This is the one who I've entrusted power to. Now, before the uh, story is told in each of these three Gospels, there's a verse that points the, the listeners forward uh, to to how Jesus expects people to witness the kingdom. So Mark's version of this verse in nine chapter, or chapter 9, verse 1, uh, Jesus is speaking and it says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And many commentators believe that this verse precedes the Mount of Transfiguration scene because the Mount of Transfiguration is fulfilling what this verse is saying, that it's this visible display of the kingdom and of power, which is exactly what Peter describes it as. Now, why does Peter bring this up? This is an interesting move. Well, it shows that he has an eyewitness and an ear witness of what these false teachers are denying, right? He's saying Jesus has the power. Look, the Father audibly endorsed him. I mean, what greater reference could you have? And also that Jesus is coming because for a moment these these apostles were able to see the resurrected, renewed uh, body of Jesus Christ. That just for a moment they got to see what would certainly be the case in the future. And so he's saying, look, our message about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, return, it's based on something. It's based on firsthand experience. We were chosen to be these authorized messengers because we saw these things firsthand, which, if you remember, was a qualification for being an apostle. Now, no historian can deny that these apostles were totally persuaded that Jesus was the coming Messiah. If you think about it, these guys made some radical uh, turns in their religious practices overnight because of something that happened with this Jesus of Nazareth. These men underwent all kinds of persecution and difficulty in their life for this message and for this belief. And these men all ultimately died as a result of their faithfulness to Jesus. And so how could this group of men, if if they're co-conspirators and making up this lie, what on earth is their motive? (laughs) If they didn't believe that this was actually the case, they never would have done the things that they did. But they did, and they they turned the world upside down as these authorized messengers of what Jesus has accomplished. So Peter recounts his experience so that these Christians could be confident that that their belief is grounded in something that's real. 
He wants him to go back to the message of the apostles and recall these things after he's gone because it's true, because it's real. So that's the first thing that he does to try to help them to recall these things is assure them, I had firsthand experience of it. But then he dives in and gets at um, scripture as a source, as, as a certain source. Let's read verses 19 through 21. It says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter wants to give them even more assurance than just his own personal experience or the experience of the apostles. Notice in verse 19, he says, And we have something more sure or more fully confirmed, is another way of saying it. He's not saying, uh, well, my experience was a little iffy, but this is, you know, really reliable. He's saying there's even more confirmation out there that Jesus has power and that he's going to return. And that's why he says you would do well to pay attention to it. Because this is a greater confirmation than even his first-hand experience. Now he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What is he referring to? It's always important to remember that in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, when it refers to the scriptures, the full New Testament canon that we know hadn't been fully formed yet. There was a body of apostolic teaching that clearly had authority, even in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, I believe, it refers to Paul's writings as scripture. So there was a sense of that. But when, when Peter is using the prophetic word, he's referring to the Old Testament and what God had spoken through the Old Testament. It is possible that there is a sense that it's that, that authority is broadened a bit with the writings of the apostles, but we know for sure it definitely includes the Old Testament. Okay. Now, he uses a picture to describe this more fully confirmed or this more certain word that they should listen to. He uses a lamp that's shining in a dark place, in a day that's dawning, in a morning star that's rising. What is he doing when he's referring to this? Well, he's talking about the light of God's word, that, that, that God's word in this time is a source of truth that can lead us and guide us that it's necessary, that our world is dark, and it shows us where to go, it exposes things. But he's also saying that that light, that lamp, will give way to a much greater light, which is the light of day, or dawn. Now, this imagery of the morning star and these kind of things point to the Old Testament, and it's really language that's describing the day when the Messiah returns, when Jesus comes back, you could say. So this certain source of truth in the scripture will be eclipsed by the entrance of truth himself. And he's doing that and referring to that final day and the certainty of that final day because these false teachers are denying that thing. So he's saying, grabbing Old Testament language and saying, 
Now this, this word will lead us to that final day of revelation when Jesus returns. Now, why would the scriptures be more sure than the apostles' experience of Jesus? Verse 20 and 21 give us the answer to that question, right? Because it basically says, Scripture doesn't ultimately come from men, it comes from God. I remember um, earlier on in being a pastor, an older saint, a dear old lady came up to me and asked me this question. How many authors of scripture are there? And I remember she wasn't particularly happy about the way that I was, I was talking about uh, a text and how a text initially appeared as being confusing or odd or strange or like what was the writer thinking. Now I would eventually explain obviously how it did make sense and why the author chose to, to communicate that way. Um, so my answer to this woman was there were 40 authors of span over 1,500 years time and kind of a seminary uh, answer, right? To which she replied, there's only one author to scripture and that is God. Now in all my maturity as a 20-something-year-old preacher, I rolled my eyes and, and wished people read you know, better books than they did and in all my arrogance. But the more I thought about that, the more I think she was on to something that was being subtly underemphasized in what I was doing. And that's something that I appreciate much, much more now, and that's the fact that the scriptures do have one source, and that source is God. It's true that scripture was written by human authors, obviously, but the claim of evangelical Christianity is that the Bible is ultimately the result of God's work, of the Holy Spirit's authorship. And we find both of those truths in verses 20 and 21. Look at what it says to start. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Peter is not saying that human beings weren't involved in the writing of Scripture. He is saying that they can't ultimately take credit for it. It's not asking if people were involved in the process. It's asking, where did it originate? Where is its source? God's recorded word didn't originate with people. They didn't just think this up on their own, is the, is the idea here. Forty authors over from diverse places spanning 1,500 years of history didn't just conspire and plot this thing out. And so if men weren't the ultimate, you know, author of Scripture, then who is? And obviously the text points to the Holy Spirit. So if the Bible had a written by blank section, you could fill in the Holy Spirit. And that explains, when he describes this as the prophetic word, why prophecies in Scripture which predate Jesus of Nazareth by hundreds of years point to the details of his origin the nature of his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his return. Because an author who's out of time can synchronize and write a consistent and beautiful redemptive story, uh, the one that we have in the scripture. And that's exactly what happened. So Peter actually takes it one step further and explains a little bit about how this happened. You know, how did the Holy Spirit do this? Did he just like possess a person and pick up a pen and 
start jotting things down? Um, well, he explains in verse 21 that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter affirms that the scriptures were written by, by men, by human beings, and that's important. Michael Horton describes this in this, this way. He says, God sanctifies the natural gifts, personalities, histories, languages, and cultural inheritance of the biblical writers. These are not blemishes or on or obstacles to divine inspiration, but the very means that God employs for accommodating his revelation to our creaturely capacity. These are the means that God employs for accommodating his revelation to our creaturely capacity. There's care from God in using human beings to author his word, in allowing us to identify with and relate to the scriptures. So when God appoints Luke to write a gospel, Luke actually writes the gospel. He doesn't stop becoming Luke. He's still a doctor. He still pays attention to detail. He still uses medical terminology. God uses real people to reveal his will through the scriptures. But Peter also says that these human writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is pharaoh, which means uh, earlier in the verse of 21, to produce. But it can also mean to be impelled or carried along by something. A more technical definition says to cause to follow a certain course in direction or conduct. So the word is actually used of a boat being carried along by the wind. Does that make sense? The sails are up and the wind is driving the boat along. It's carrying it along. Both There's a, a cooperation of participation that's happening. And that's a helpful picture because you could say that the boat is moving because the sails are up and you can say that the wind is really moving the boat uh, as well and that without the wind the boat wouldn't move. So scripture is both human and divine and both are extremely important because scripture is relatable because it's authored by human beings but it's transformative because it's divine. You could even stop and take some time now to talk about why it's important that Scripture is both of those things. A woman named Mary Healy does a good job capturing this tension in Scripture by comparing the nature of Scripture to the nature of Christ. And this, these are deep waters, so just bear with me as we read this. She says, As the eternal Word has become fully human, like us in all things but sin, so Scripture is fully human composed by human agents within the limitations of their historical, cultural, and linguistic settings, and exercising the full powers of their intelligence and freedom. At the same time, as Christ was fully divine, so Scripture is able to express the revelation of God in all its fullness. These two natures of Scripture are not intention or juxtaposition, but indissoluble unity. We cannot pick apart a sentence or a part, and assign its divine and human components. Because this is God speaking, and this part's man speaking. We can't do that. Just as one cannot come to know the triune God except through the humanity of Christ, so one cannot approach the divine or revelatory meaning of the Bible except through its human meaning. 
The spiritual meaning shines precisely through the literal as the divinity of Christ radiates through his humanity. So in the same way that Christ is both human and divine, the scriptures are human and divine as well. Maybe that's a helpful way of thinking about it. In in doctrinal terms, we're talking about the inspiration of scripture, which is not the kind of emotionally inspired sense, but in the source sense. Where did scripture come from? And throughout the history of the church, um, and in our tradition specifically, we believe in something called concursive inspiration. Todd Miles, a professor at Western, describes it this way, that God so superintended the process of composing the scriptures that the end result manifests his divine intention. It says what he wants it to say. And this without overriding the human authors and their intentions. John Frame, another scholar, describes it this way, I define inspiration as a divine act that creates an identity between a divine word and a human word. That's inspiration. And what this is really showing us is that we can have confidence that every word that is in the Bible is God's word, is God's word to us. They're chosen carefully and specifically that because he oversaw the process and he carried along the biblical writers, what he intended to write is written. Now, we have all kinds of questions about, well, how did he do that, right? How did the Holy Spirit actually motivate these authors, and, and what did he authorize them to, and what do we do with the fact that we don't have the very first original document, and how did they know what specific words, I mean, there's just endless questions, right? How did this work in practice? What did it feel like to sit down and write inspired scripture? Now, we can talk about those things from other texts, but we have to, to always be careful to not go beyond what the intended boundaries of a text are. And Peter doesn't intend to explain that to us, either because it would blow our minds or he's got other things that he wants to say. And, and the Holy Spirit doesn't really give us access to that file. So we need to be content to just understand that the scriptures are both human and divine uh, and leave it there. So Peter is saying that this inspired word, specifically the Old Testament, um, are more sure than Peter's eyewitness experience because they originate not from human will or human thought, but from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying is more sure. So let's quickly recap and we'll talk about implications. Um, Peter wants to remind these disciples about the importance of godliness. Right, That was his point. And he wants to do that so that their faith is stable in the future for after, after he's gone. And he does that in two ways, by retelling this experience that he's had to seeing the glory and the return uh, of Jesus. That saying, you should believe our message because it's based on firsthand experience. And the second thing he gives them, it's an even more stabilizing influence, is that they have a, a confirmed and a more certain word in the Old Testament scriptures that they're the unchanging reference point for godliness for their future, even after Peter is long gone. And that's because they are God's revelation, not man's, not man's idea. Okay. Now let's think through some implications of this, and then we'll hear some people from our body testify to the truthfulness of this. 
One, there's simply two implications. One, we need reminders. We need reminders. It's not because you're dumb, it's because you're human. That's why we need reminders. And it's no mistake that God preserved this apostle's reminder about godliness in the Bible. Isn't that generous of him? Like, Peter, you want to make sure they'll remember? I'm going to scripturate what you're saying. So God's desire to remind us is seen in Peter's desire to remind them. And what this really gets at when it comes to reminders is our posture towards God's reminders. Let me ask you a few questions. How do you respond to a person who's reminding you about something that's found in Scripture? Or how do you respond when you come across a familiar part of the Bible, when you read it maybe in your morning time? What's our posture towards God's, the way that God delivers reminders to us? You could stop and think about that or discuss that, or you can um, wait to do that after we're done. We easily forget, right? But sometimes in our pride, we, we think that we're above reminding, above taking the time to drink deeply again of a scripture that we're familiar with. Maybe this global situation is a mirror into, into the degree of your working understanding of God's sovereignty or God's goodness or God's wisdom. It's not that you never learn those things, but knowing something and relying on something are different. So we can know things, but not rely on them. So we forget names all the time, right? When you're out of use, you haven't seen someone for a long time. Or a password, for example, that you haven't used for a year, and you sit down and try to remember it. When things fall out of use, we forget them. When we're not required to apply things, or we choose not to, we forget them. We forget how to use certain tools because the last time we used it was two years ago. This happens all the time, and it's the same with truth. When we don't, we're not using truth actively, we're not relying on it, but merely saying, well, I know, and I've read that verse before, it, it falls out of use, and it's easy to forget. A few questions. What has this pandemic revealed about what you are relying on? Have you been reminded of anything that perhaps you had forgotten? Even simple things. What are ways that God reminds his people? Scripture is certainly one way, but what are other ways too? Or what are the kinds of things that God reminds us about? In this context, Peter's reminding them about the importance of godliness. But God's reminders are far more broad than just Remember to do this. Remember to do that. The reminders about who we are and who he is and what he's promised to do and commands, but also comforts. God reminds us about so many different things. And if, if you had to stand back and think, well, what is a, a common thing that, that God's inspired word insists on or constantly points to? You could ask, what's the chorus of the Bible? Does it keep coming back to again and again and again? And the answer to that is Jesus, right? He's the point of the scriptures. He is God's great reminder to us. 
of what God is like and of what we're in need of and what he's provided and of his disposition towards us and the, the hope that we have in the future and the, the promise that lies ahead. Jesus is the chorus of Scripture. Jesus is the great reminder to us. So first, we need reminders because we're human and God knows that. Peter knows that. The scriptures now are helping us to remember the importance of godliness. Number two, God's word is the great stabilizer. God's word is the great stabilizer. Many of us are witnessing uh, how few certainties there are in this life. The job that you thought nothing could affect has been affected. The person that you thought you knew so well, maybe you, don't, you didn't know as well as you thought. The society that we thought was so insulated from catastrophe is now in crisis. The lifespan you thought that you could determine is now maybe in question more often than normal. The relationships that you thought were invincible to intrusion are now separated. The health that you assume for your future might not be. The financial security that your family and our nation presumed upon is changing. Not many things are certain in this life. And think of how quickly the things that we thought were certain have become uncertain. In a matter of weeks. It's astounding when you think about it. This is because these are things that are subject, they're reliant, they're dependent, they're a consequence of something, or they're, uh, they assume certain conditions. And like dominoes, these things fall and change and are not found to be certain anymore. They're vulnerable and ultimately uninsured because they're dependent, or they're tied to fallen people, or they're relying on a fluctuating financial market. Things change because they're out of our control. And we don't have the power or the wisdom uh, to make sure that people stay the way that they, uh, we thought they were, or to, to make sure that catastrophe doesn't happen, or to add even a single minute to our lives. We are temporary, dependent, vulnerable, subject creatures. But in all of this uncertainty, Peter says, there is something that's certain. God and his word are certain. Now, why are those things certain? Sinful men wrote them, and they wrote them thousands of years ago. And, but Peter is telling us there's absolutely one thing that is certain, and that's God and his word. And that's because God is independent. He's free from influences outside of himself. He's not subject to anyone. What he wants, he does. He doesn't ask permission for anything. Everything he intends happens. He is eternal. He is powerful. He is creator. He is almighty. And because he is all of those things, his word is secure and certain. And if Peter can get these believers and us to understand that God the Holy Spirit made certain the accuracy of this book and this revelation then we have something that's invincibly reliable and trustworthy. No matter what the days look like ahead, something is certain 
God and his word. I love an illustration that John Piper uses of a ballast of a boat. A ballast is something that's, that's really heavy, that's placed in the hole or the bottom of a boat. Um, sometimes it's even a tank of water. Uh, and what that ballast does is essentially um, ground the boat while waves come and push the boat around and, and toss it and turn it and do every which thing. Because of the weight of that ballast, the boat is not tipped. The boat is not thrown. A ballast stabilizes a ship. And so I really think it's an appropriate picture for what God's word, the role of God's word is in our life. Maybe a question to discuss would be, how has God's word been a ballast in your life? What were some times that his, his certain word kept you stable? You know, God's word is our home base. It's our reference point. Uh, it's our you know emergency plan meeting spot. It's our north star. It's our ballast. And to the degree that God's word is our source and meditation and focus, is the degree to which our lives will be stabilized by the dizzying effects of our circumstances around us. The source of Scripture guarantees the certainty of Scripture. And if God carried along human authors to write as he superintended, then we have a certain shelter in the word of God. And that's important for a time like this. I hope you're taking advantage of this time to be in God's word. As odd as this time is, it's, there's certainly an invitation there for us to spend time with God and his word. I could talk more about this, but instead I want to... I hear from people who are experiencing what we're talking about, how God's word has been a ballast during this season in their life. So let's let them bring this sermon to a close by illustrating how God is doing that and stabilizing them in this awkward time.